Welcome to The Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditchwich, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by Aaron Martin, the host of Bass Edge Television. How are you today, my friend? I am doing well, Steve. We have a packed show as we will be joining Scott Suggs down on Caddo Lake uh, there on the uh, Texas-Louisiana border. And then a little bit later, we'll have Dr. Jay McNamara back up uh, to bring us some of his knowledge and and then I think we've we've got a surprise in, in line here for the end of the show. We absolutely do. I tell you what, it's always great to talk to Scott and Dr. J. It's going to be fun. Everybody stay put, because in the last segment of the show, we're going to announce the lucky winner of our 100th podcast giveaway. Get her like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing. Oh, God. did you see Yes, that? I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. the FLW guys were our neck of the woods this week. Uh, did you get down to visit with some of them? Oh, most definitely did, and they were in full force. Of course, uh, we're talking specifically about the FLW tour that was in town where they paid out $125,000. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, that would look good in your 401k, Steve. Um, but, uh, no, they... It would be lonesome. Yeah. <laughs> But no, uh, you know, FLW went to where they have uh, uh, Wednesdays prior to the tournament. Uh, they yeah. are off limits, not allowed to be out on the water. So that provided us the opportunity. The Bass Edge crew, we slipped down and uh, were able to get uh, numerous interviews, visit with the guys, a whole quandary of, of new quick tips that you'll be seeing coming out on the website. And uh, just, you know, just an opportunity to talk about what's going on on the water, what they're seeing. Very, very interesting. Of course, David Walker came out day one had 26 pounds, 11 ounces, and uh, you know, that's, that's pretty respectable for a Midwestern yeah. Highland Reservoir. That's rocking on Table Rock. I'll tell you <laughs> what, that is getting it on. You know, it's getting that time of year when you get some, some giant bags, the best bags of the year. Yeah. And, uh, hey, hey, I see our, our guest this week, uh, Mr. Suggs, did bear himself in that time. He did, you know, and uh, congratulations out to him. Only missed first place. Of course, it might as well have been 10 pounds mm-hmm. instead of 10 <laughs> ounces, but he only missed first place by 10 ounces. And, you know, the interesting thing is I had conversations with a lot of the different anglers as far as what was going on. You know, it's that transition time that we've spoke about. They're kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that water temperature there on Table Rock. It was in the upper to low 50s. Uh, we had that cold spell that came through, but now, you know, it's 70, 80 degrees, and uh, full moon's right around the corner. But Scott, he concentrated. He went out to his home lake there on Ouachita, and leading up to the event, really that reservoir has a lot of similarities to Table Rock. And he was experimenting with something different, and he told me, he said, Aaron, if I can get this to work on Ouachita, he said, I promise you, I can get it to work on Table Rock. And, boy, Mr. Consistent, that's all I can say. And he was using a mm-hmm. swim bait, uh, fishing that. He had the bait weighted perfectly, did a countdown throwing it in those treetops for those staging fish uh, in about the 35 to 25-foot range, just swimming it along, and uh, brought a limit to the scales every day, and I think that says a lot about this time of year that we can use and go around the country and be able to do this very, very same thing. Well, yes, uh, and it all sounded pretty familiar, didn't it, to me, to you and I? I mean, <laughs> we catch a lot of fish that way throughout the year here, and of course, he's uh, I'm sure, you know, when he said he caught fish at 60 and 70 feet at some points, that absolutely blew some people's minds. But it's quite common around here. 
But it struck me that he talked about, and, and we do this so much, is just uh, buzz around looking at the trolling motor, looking for bait in, in deep water. And, and we do a lot of that, and we've been talking a lot about that lately. Well, we have, and, you know, it's really interesting based upon our conversations that we've had here on the edge and also just uh, via telephone through the website, those type of things. You know, the violent weather patterns that you see, and this played out perfectly uh, on Table Rock Lake for the FLW Tour, uh, was the fact that, you know, it was warm during their practice. So the shallow fish, you know, they kind of moved up, and they were following that bait fish, but then we had that, well, on the first day of the tournament, I mean, it was actually sleeting, Steve, and it was just nasty weather, low in the 20s mm-hmm. at takeoff. I think it got to a high of, like, 33 degrees. They were having problems with the ice on the reels, guidelines, and everything else that was on the rod. But the, the deep factor uh, really played a part. And, and, you know, when we get into that kind of like the electronics and deep fishing DVD talks about, if you can have that in your back pocket and know that you've got to be able to concentrate on those bait fish, but use those electronics as a tool, I think it, it couldn't have played out any better. Well, you know, and it struck me that what he did to get second place in that tournament is exactly what we've got in that bonus footage where you and Mike Webb uh, go deep fishing uh, at the end of the Electronics uh, 101 DVD. And uh, I thought, yep, yeah, yeah, been there, done that. And uh, I'm getting ready to, I need to go there and do that. Yeah. I'm tired of staring at, yeah. this, at this computer. Well, I, I do know one thing. I mean, at least in the Midwest, uh, I think we have officially crossed or breached over into that trend of weather. We're still going to have, you know, some, some days probably where those cold fronts are still going to be a factor. But you know full well those staging areas close to that deep water where they can move up right into those spawning pockets on those points feet, follow that bait fish, that wiggle wart, that jig. The crayfish are starting to loosen up a little bit, and a lot of guys caught them on wiggle warts too. So it's going to be an exciting time of year. And, right. and you know, it's, it's a time of year when all species, whether it be walleye, crappie, mm-hmm. sunfish, what have you, it's just a great time of year to be on the water. Well, it is, you know, and, and we're supposed to have, I think we're in mid-70s today, and we'll be there again tomorrow, and I am going to try to slip out tomorrow afternoon and you know it's funny it's kind of hard to work <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> trying to decide you know I, honestly it's funny it's like well where should i go and i i I'm, we're just so lucky to live here in the ozarks but you know i'm sitting here trying to decide whether to throw my canoe in tomorrow afternoon and go catch some smallmouth down the james river where to go down the lake whether to go do a little trout fishing maybe uh you ever do that you ever, <laughs> you ever try to like you ever have trouble deciding where you're going to go? Yeah, it's like a dog chasing his tail. You've got so many options and so many things that you would like to do, but the only so much time. You know, about this time of year, I started thinking about uh, new things I wanted to try and things I haven't done enough of, and I just sort of start laying out the sort of the big picture for the year of fishing. That, that's what makes you appreciate the cold weather because and, and staying involved in the sport and and taking time to kind of plot out, okay, your plan. Where are you going to target? What are you going to do? Where are you mm-hmm. going to be at this time of year? And, you know, of course, we have to do that with Bass Edge because of the filming schedule. But uh, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. Um, and then looking back at the end of the year and saying, okay, what would I have done differently? Or how would I have targeted the fish? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's as much about the chase as what it is the actual reeling in. Well, and, what are you going to do this year? I mean, what, what do you got on your plate? I mean, what are you thinking about that you want to do more this year than – You've done well, I, you know, I think one of the things is, is going to be swimming jigs. Um, there has been a little bit of press that's, that's kind of brought that way, but it seems to be overshadowed right now by the frog bait and the swim baits and, and you know, that type of thing. And, and the swimming jigs are one of those types of, of lures and presentations that regardless of where you're at in the country is effective. Let's say if you have vegetation. When I'm talking about swimming jigs, I'm talking about 
it's a specially designed head that has a little bit more flatter head so that it comes through uh, the water and that you can reel and crank it. Effectively, if you just think of it as a spinnerbait without the blades, that's how I do it. You still put the same trailer on, but you match the colors according to the type of forage that they're fishing on. Maybe it's brim, you know, maybe it's perch, maybe it's a bait fish. And that's what I use for the colors, but if you have vegetation, you know, a lot of times those bass will stage on the edges or in those holes and in the pockets uh, buried deep in the vegetation. So you can make that cast and just reel it slow. And as the topography of the bottom of the lake or the bottom of the river tapers off, you just pause and let it sink a little bit more and then just slowly reel it. And those fish will come up out of that vegetation or off that edge and eat it. Likewise, you can use it around docks for those fish that are suspended post-spawn, you know, right up under the docks or in the timber. You know, let's say... If we look at some of the lakes that don't have the vegetation in it, then what do you do? Well, guess what? Those fish are staging, just like we talked about earlier with Scott Suggs, holding in those trees. You can count that jig down, reel it nice and slow, and uh, those fish really, really load up on it. Well, when you said swimming jigs, I, I thought to myself, he's been talking to the same people I have, because, you know, it, it's just, uh, there have been a lot of guys that have done very well on these in the tournaments, and you're starting to hear a lot about the baits. To be honest with you, some I haven't done a lot of, and I'm anxious to, to add that to the arsenal this year. Well, no question, and I think that in and of itself is the fact that, you know, because fish get educated to the uh, consistency of the presentation that the anglers are throwing at them. And if you can reach into your tackle box and pull something out that maybe not isn't so much in vogue, let's say, uh, it's going to give you the edge. Right. So I'm a little different from, yeah. the, from the NC. Yeah. Well, hi, hey, by the way, how was your trip to Arkansas? Oh, it was excellent. It was excellent. Went down to the uh, to the annual outdoor show there in Mountain Home and saw a lot of friends, made some new friends. And, uh, you know, that part of Arkansas is just, it's what Southern hospitality is all about. And, uh, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of friends down there, and so when your time is up uh, signing books, somebody says, "Well, we need to go fishing." And, you know, <laughs> so my arm's all sore from all the arm twisting, you know. But I did get to go fishing a couple of days, and it was pretty good. It was, fishing was real good. Had a good time, and look forward to getting back down there. And look forward, uh, I got a little more traveling coming. Well, up. Well, yeah, you're kind of doing the book tour here, and uh, so that's exciting. Yeah, we are, and, uh, you know, it it is fun. It's just fun to go sit and have anglers show up and just talk about fishing, and you learn about new spots, you hear people suggest new things, so it's a lot of fun. But, yeah, I'll also be at Backcountry Outfitters here on Saturday, March 28th, to sign books at their annual spring fling, and there'll be a lot of uh, anglers there and uh, a lot of folks to... Uh, uh, talk angling about. Uh, Dwayne Hayden, the guy that did the uh, cover of my book and the illustrations inside, will be there doing sketches and selling paintings, and along with uh, other fly tires and angler sorts. So uh, I urge everybody to come by and say howdy. Yeah, that's right there in Springfield, Missouri. And, and you know, one other thing, Steve, because, I mean, it's just amazing once we get going, I mean, how quickly this time goes by. But don't you find it interesting, you know, how kind of the, uh, the Bass Edge merchandise and your books and everything has taken off? I mean, I know we were adding five and six dealers on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Our most recent, actually, was uh, the Outdoorsman Sports Shop, which is located there at 1010 South State Road 135 in Greenwood, mm-hmm. Indiana. Uh, they've got the full lineup. So uh, if you want to save yourself some shipping and you happen to be in that area, 
uh, swing by there. They'd love to talk hunting or fishing and show you some of the latest stuff there. And we'll be uh, kind of bringing that up to speed as more. We'll have a whole laundry list probably here in the upcoming weeks of uh, dealers that's, that's uh, joined us. Well, that's going to be coming to the shelves of a lot of the stores near you, and uh, that should make it handy for people to get out and uh, get their Bass Edge gear. And we've got some big plans on putting some very cool DVDs out this year. And... Uh, got a couple other books on the on the uh, drawing board, so we urge you to uh, listen to the edge, and we'll let you know where you can pick that stuff up. Well, Aaron, we've just been gabbing along here. We're going to have to get to the work. Let's take a quick break and come back and hear what Scott Suggs has to say. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 tow and pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. All right, we are back on the edge, and joining us for this week's Angler Spotlight is FLW Pro, Mr. Scott Sugg. Scott, thanks so much for being part of the edge. It's great getting to be a part of it. You know, I'm really enjoying myself here. Well, I know, Scott, you just got off the water. How'd your day go? It's this pre-spawn type deal. Uh, you're going between winter and spawn, and uh, I was on Lake Washed all day. It's, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't had the opportunity to be over there many times since I won the championship over there. I've been so busy, and today started out pretty rough, but it wound up that I had a really good afternoon, and I'm kind of fired up. I'm ready to go back. Yeah, well, those are kind of the days that uh, it's kind of like having a bad day of golf. You know, something about it that uh, once you figure something out and kind of get you to where you want to be back out there and you know speaking of which that was much like our day that we spent down on Caddo when we started out down there and you know before we kind of dive off into the specifics man what a lake why don't you kind of explain what your thoughts are on the lake and what anglers can expect you know should they decide to venture down there well you know what I saw when I was there of course we had the high water issue and a lot of current and everything and some off-colored water but you know the lake's full of vegetation it had every kind of uh, vegetation in it you could imagine but yet what it's known for is the thousands upon thousands of cypress trees and just getting to go you know we fish so many open water lakes and boat docks and all kinds of stuff like that and getting to be on a body of water with that many trees and getting to actually go and flip to cypress trees and fish the knees out from them and all that good stuff it was just you know a great time and everything and and the thing about it is being a trophy lake like it is that lake is full of giants oh no question and you know it was one of those type of situations where you never knew uh, the next cast could be a double digit fish and you know we, we stayed right there out of uncertain texas there at Spatterdock and right. You know, it's, it's hard to explain. Of course, you and I got to enjoy it because we were there. But, you know, for our listeners, it was almost like when we were there at not only the, the resort, but also on the lake, I kept waiting for a T-Rex to fly out of the, you know, out of the treetops. I mean, I'm telling you, the place, just the atmosphere around the lake, the sights that you got to see, then the lake, the houses out, you know, on the water, on stilts. Right. Everything. I mean... I kept waiting for the water boy to come flying out of <laughs> uh, I mean, it was awesome. What a what a place. And, you know, uh, we ate well while we were there as well. And, uh, you know, I can remember one in particular. I'll tell a 
kind of a funny story on us, but uh, do you remember, I think it was that first night when we came into town, of course you flew in, you had another engagement uh, prior to that, so got in late, and uh, of course we had just rolled into town, you had a rental truck, and all of us went uh, to get something to eat, I think at a local catfish house, and anyway, long story short, Brigman had a story to get out, and so he did, was then able to join us, and we took a uh, to-go order, and we forgot it, we left it sitting on the counter, so... You and I uh, decided to pull a 180 right there in the middle of the road, and uh, lo and behold, the, the shoulder wasn't as strong as what we thought it was. It was pretty soggy. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever buried a rental truck. Yeah, I, I just remember when we ran off, and all of a sudden, you know, of course, it sunk practically up to its frame, and I looked over, you know, I said, well, no big deal. Just lock it in four-wheel drive, and we'll just back out. And uh, I think your comment was, Aaron, I don't have four-wheel drive. But <laughs> well, it seems like I told you if we were in my truck, I'd do it, but... <laughs> So hats off uh, to the gentleman. You know, we never did get his name. I think we were just so happy to be pulled out. Uh, somebody stopped there out in the middle of nowhere, wherever we were, and uh, uh, hooked onto us and got us out quickly. But luck, uh, was, luck was our way he, because we could have went hours without seeing another person. That's for sure. That's for sure. But it was certainly a memorable time and one uh, a great way to get our fishing trip started. Speaking of that, we had a time. It was almost like your day to day that you explained. You know, it took us a little while before we were able to kind of get in there and start rooting around and, and figuring out what was going on. And, you know, we did exactly what I'd do on that lake if I went back. You know, we got out of the current right off the bat and went back into some backwater that was away from the river that was full of vegetation, pads, grass, all kinds of stuff. And we started fishing that type of stuff right off the bat, which I'd do anywhere. And once that didn't work, you know, we just started moving our way and working our way on down the lake where the lake really spread out more and everything and got, you know, as much out of, really out of the current as we could and just went to hitting those isolated clumps of trees that were on the little ridge tops or hump tops and things like that. And we were able to put a little something together. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, humps, that's kind of relative to, I guess, the depth and, and kind of the, the topography of the lake that you're fishing. And in this particular case down on Caddo, I mean, we're only talking about a hump maybe that came up, what, 12 to 18 inches? On a lake like that, that's really normally a shallow lake, and I see this on a lot of the lakes I go to, one to three foot is a pretty good drop on these lakes, and it doesn't seem like that much when you're looking on your unit and everything, but it really is on these kinds of bodies of water, and that's another thing about this cypress tree fishing and everything. Even though every tree out there looks good, only certain ones are usually going to hold them, and they're going to be related. Those trees that hold fish are going to be related to some kind of contour change. Was that kind of the advice that you would give as far as um, when trying to figure out? Because like you said, I mean, there is literally thousands upon thousands of these trees at Caddo. And, and this is, you know, whether you go to Blackshire or, or whatever lake you want to call it that has all these cypress trees in it. Is that what you're looking for? Well, it's just like coming to Lake Washington over here or to any other lake. You can have a hump out in the lake somewhere out offshore and uh, have a brush pile like out on the tip of it. And that brush pile is going to be productive a lot of times. And you could have another brush pile thrown right out in the middle of nowhere out there and uh, may not ever catch a bass out of it. A bass is a really a contour-orientated fish, and for the right structure on the right contour, it's going to pay off, you know, way more than once. So it's almost like a lake, let's say, that has a tremendous amount of docks. The reason that the bass are holding there is because of the topography that's underneath. That's right. And I mean, and that's another thing. That's what sets so many anglers off, especially the ones that are really successful tournament anglers and stuff. It's just like they've got a vision of what's 
what it looks like under the water as much as you could ever figure out on a contour map or a Navionics chip or anything else. I mean, being able to visualize what you're fishing and the reason why you're fishing that particular tree or brush pile or whatever is all the difference in the world. Well, one of the things that we mentioned earlier uh, in the interview, but also realized, fully realized when we were filming the show, was the discussion about current. You know, in a, in a lot of places you go to, current is a good thing. Why do you think that, you know, when we ventured to Caddo, that current was actually working against us? Well, because I think of mainly just like we had talked about, these fish, one thing, they're not used to that much current, and the other thing is there was probably a mother load that we did not find that had repositioned themselves in a different area, different, probably real close to where we were at because we were catching some of the, probably some of the same group of fish that live in this giant school, yeah. and uh, they had repositioned and you know, we're somewhere maybe not even on a cypress tree. Sure. Maybe off the lips of one of those drops just out of the current feeding over something that's coming over the top of them. And that was our biggest deal there. That's where the lack of experience on the water on that particular lake worked against us. Well, and, and don't you think, though, I mean, obviously when, when we come into town and have to film, I mean, we've got limited time, and, and especially in this instance, you know, you had an obligation before and you had to basically get on a plane the day after, you know, to get out of town. But... It's still reassuring to know that you can take just common sense that you've gained from other areas that you've fished, even when you and I hadn't even been on this body of water, and put that to use. That's the deal. When you have such a short time like what we had and everything, we're just trying to touch all the bases. And we knew eventually that we were going to hit the right cypress trees, and we did. But like I said, we could have maybe been there a week later and the current died and everything. And as far as you and I know, we may have fished some of the most productive trees in the entire lake well i know for a fact i mean that that one particular area where we were fishing those kind of the guts of those creeks that came right. out between those islands uh that very next week there was a 13 pounder in a, in a tournament that was caught because this is a slot lake remember we've right. got to put that in perspective and so you know you're you're either fishing for a fish that's over the slot or under the slot if you catch one over the slot it's going to have some shoulders on him that's exactly right and you know like i say those fish probably totally repositioned the lake probably slowed down the current fell out but uh, there's another time though you were talking about current working to our advantage it may have been two weeks later it may have been a summertime pattern and they run current like that and the same trees we fished may have been really awesome these fish may have positioned themselves out of the current and behind these cypress trees and these cypress trees provide so much shade and everything in the hot summertime, it may have been a killer deal then. To me, it's all based on wind, where, water temperature, and everything else that's happening, what stage the fish are in, whether they're spawn fish, post-spawn fish, whether they're summertime pattern or whatever. And I guarantee you there's times on that lake, if it would have been a month or two later than when you and I were there, and had the same conditions, it would have probably been ugly. Well, and and you're exactly right, and that's all the more reason why that as anglers we have to fish the conditions. You know, and, and another point that you brought up and spoke very well of during the show was the topic of, of what we called knees on the end of these cypress trees. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, what cypress trees do, they, they have a, out of their root systems, they have knees that pop up. And some of them, depending on the depth of the water, there could be, and they, they make a ring around these trees, or, you know, all the way around the outside of the limb. It's unbelievable. It's just awesome cover. It's kind of like a brush pile under the water around these trees. And you can pull up a lot of times, and 
and be flipping these trees, not be able to see the knees sticking up and fish them. And you can you can flip in on a tree one or two times and say, well, there's no knees on it. You know, this probably is not going to be a productive tree. It always seems like the trees with the most knees and the most clutter in and under and around these trees are the most productive trees. Well, I would agree with that, and it makes sense. You know, when you look at kind of a fish's three things that they're looking for based upon their food, security, and the comfort, those knees provide not only security for the bass, but also security for the forage that they're feeding on. Exactly. And, you know, really, the the other thing that I think was critical, and it took us some time to get to this point, but were you surprised at the bait that they ended up responding to, that black neon worm with that quarter-ounce peg sinker? I was really surprised with it, but, you know, we tried everything in the box. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, we, we hit on the right thing, so... That's the main thing in any angler. I don't care if you're a weekend angler or a tournament angler. Once you gain confidence in something, then it sure makes it easy if you've got 100 trees in a line to go flip (laughs) and you've got confidence in the bait now. It makes those trees a lot easier to go pitch to. Boy, that's for sure. And, and, you know, we, we even experimented not only with the actual style and the types of bait and the colors, but also the weight, and it seemed like if, if you deviated and we got too heavy and maybe went up to a 3 8 ounce tungsten on the end there, peg, it was falling too fast. They right. had to have that slower, that more subtle presentation. That's right. And like we said, you know, the color we chose and the everything, the water was off-colored, I'm sure, more than what it would normally be with the current running like it was. And, you know, with a tail on a, on a dead ringer, it puts off a lot of, it moves a lot of water. And with it falling slower, they were able, I think, to pinpoint it a lot easier. And, and uh, you know, it's just one of those deals where you can't really explain what made that bait exactly the one they wanted or whatever. But that's what makes fishing so fun. You can't explain everything. If you could, we'd catch them all exactly, out Exactly. Exactly. And one thing I can explain, though, is that it seemed like if we did not have it, that bait presented right up against uh, either those knees or the cypress tree itself, it seemed like they had their noses right in against that vertical cover. And I think that was all due to the current. I really do. I think they were pressed up against them and, you know, watching for anything like the dead ringer or anything to come swimming around the side of those trees. And it was makes for a great ambush point. And I think that, you know, like you said, and another real good tip that any person going and flipping cypress trees really needs to pay attention to and you know we saw this while we were there for some reason doesn't matter what part of the country you go to whenever you flip in on a cypress tree always pay attention to your line boy that's better to let it fall on a slack line (laughs) don't hold it on a tight line but pay attention because by the time you can clip your bell if he's there i don't know why they do it but everyone will grab it and just swim they'll be 10 yards away from the tree before you realize if you're not paying attention and you'll miss a bunch of them. Yeah, we got handcuffed a couple times. I remember it was almost like uh, I was wondering if I had fished before after I saw that a couple times. But, you know, the other thing that came into play as well, and I think, uh, you know, in our last minute here, we'll cover it very quickly. You know, we were out there banging around with two boats, obviously, because we had the camera boat in that. And prop wash or, or noise and backwash from your trolling motor was absolutely mm-hmm. critical and could shut down a bite in a hurry. That's right. Anytime you fish shallow water, you know, that lateral line's put on those fish for a reason, and they can feel the vibrations and hear or 
it's really their way of hearing, and they can sense something so far off that they'll either sit there locked up and not do anything, or you'll totally scare them plumb away from the tree or whatever shallow cover you're fishing. Yeah, no question. And, and you know, the, the final thing, and then we'll get out of here, is the, is the duck blinds. Those also, you know, I don't care where you go, it seems like across the country in the shallow water reservoirs, anytime you have those duck blinds that are built out there, be sure and make a cast in them, because a lot of times that vegetation, you know, that's, that's vertical structure, overhead canopy, great staging area for bass. Awesome area. Scott, thanks so much uh, for your time. You're always truly a professional and uh, so gracious with us. Any closing thoughts before we get out of here? You know, if there's any anglers out there that have any kind of questions, you know, I ho- always hope I can answer. Feel free to go to BassEdge.com, get your question in, and we'll do everything we can to answer it back. Well, sounds great. Scott, we wish you the best of luck in the upcoming season, and once again, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Power, productivity, speed. It's the best trencher ever made, not to mention the best plow. Dumper, tiller, backhoe, stump grinder, and tool carrier ever made. The Zahn, the revolution is here. I'm Sean Hernke, and you're listening to The Edge. Man, that was good stuff. You know, listening to Scotty, he just takes me back to our time on Lake Caddo there on the Louisiana-Texas border, and it's just so unique. It's just got to be one of the neatest fisheries in the country. Well, no question. I, you know, my memory, and at the sake of sounding redundant here, is I can remember you actually beat us to the location because we were coming from separate directions, and I can remember pulling into Spatterdock, which is where we stayed, and, mm-hmm. you know, just seeing that Spanish moss hanging down from those trees and that awesome cabin being right there, swamp side, you know, riverfront. It was almost eerie in a way because you could almost put yourself back in the day when the individuals that went out in canoes and kind of first discovered, uh, you know, what the lake and the layout of the land mm-hmm. around there. But, you know, the wildlife was just tremendous, let alone the fact that on any given cast, you have the opportunity to hook into a double-digit fish. Oh, yes. It's near Uncertain, Texas, one of my favorite town names of <laughs> You're all kind time. of uncertain. But I'll tell you what, I was pretty uncertain when I was pulling into there, because, like you said, you've got to be going there to get there. It is at the end of the road, but that is just such a big part of the charm. There at Spatterdock, we had such a great house that we stayed in, in the lake itself is just essentially a flooded cypress forest for people that haven't seen it before. Right. Uh, tons of shallow water and all cypress trees and big bass. Oh, no we just We just had a great time. We did. And, you know, like Scott and I had talked about in the interview and remembering, recalling back to our day on the water, you know, there was a tremendous amount of current, Steve, that was coming through mm-hmm. there. And that was one of the challenges that we were dealt with. But the key was, and, you know, it makes it difficult when you're trying to film a TV show because you have two boats, and, mm-hmm. and the trolling motor and the prop wash on those cypress trees was just absolutely critical that you did not do that uh, because the concentrations that we found on those little humps, and when I say a hump, you know, it's like Scott mentioned during the interview, that might only be 6, 8, 10 inches to a foot uh, mm-hmm. of where they were pulling off right off the main channel. And 
you had to present, we finally had to go down to that quarter ounce weight that was pegged on that worm and get that bait right up against that tree because those fish were literally nosed on the back side of those cypress trees and those knees right. around the cypress trees to stay out of the current. Current is not your friend when it comes to, you know, Florida strain bass. <laughs> no, it's not, especially a shallow lake that's essentially a swamp. I mean, right. You know, it, there cannot be in very much water over six or seven feet in that lake. But, uh, you know, I thought it was a, an interesting show in one way that the great adjustments that you guys made to finally catch some fish, because let's face it, conditions really couldn't have been much harder. Kind of goes to show, you know, I mean, you can always catch some fish no matter what. And learning to fish around those, those cypress trees. And, you know, you mentioned the knees, and I'm not sure all our listeners know what we're talking about because a lot of parts of the country don't have cypress trees. But these cypress trees that are in the water... They are very often ringed by part of their root system that comes back up as a, like a little stump, and they're called knees. And so many times those fish will set up on those knees, and what the locals tell me down there is that they always set up facing the tree because that's where you know a lot of their food comes from is things falling out of the tree right. or shad using, you know, bait fish using the tree for their own protection. Right, kind of navigating around the tree and being trying to be somewhat stealth but yet give them the sense of security and that's really right. what we found and you know of course that lake it, it's like any time that you have a, a significant weather change or anything like that you have to deal with what you are given and of course we went down there scott and i was all fired up thinking you know this is going to be you know a spawning situation catching those those big fish but you know i've got to be honest i was happy to come away with we really had to work for what we've got mm -hmm. but there again it goes back to like we've said so many times and why all of us anglers do this a lot of it is the challenge of just figuring out and taking satisfaction mm -hmm. that you've got to put it into perspective on the conditions that you're given thanks to scott for uh, we kept our heads down and just uh, kept a variety of things uh, on the end of our lines until we finally got that refined and then started, uh, you know, capitalizing on that. Well, you know, it made a great show because we learned so much. But I tell you what, Aaron, I want to book us again down there when conditions are perfect and go uh, nail some of those 10 or 12 pounders at that lake. Well, home. you know, the week after we left, like I mentioned during the interview, they nailed the 13-pounder. <laughs> you know, it's kind well, of one of those deals, you should have been here last week or uh, you should be here next week type deal. Well, yeah, that's the story of my life. It was almost the name of my book, you should have been here yesterday. But that's the story of my life. But uh, there's always another day. That's right. We've got a great season ahead of us. I tell you what, Aaron, we've got a pretty good reader question this week, one that we get asked all the time. So I thought we would uh, let you read that. Maybe we'll both just comment a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. This comes uh, from Justin in uh, Arkansas, and it says, I want to become a professional bass fisherman when I get older. I have no idea on how to get started. I am 13 years old, and my family doesn't have a boat, so I don't fish that much. I fish with my grandpa sometimes, but he lives in southern Arkansas. I've read articles on how to get started, but they all say the same thing. You need to get in a bass club. So I want to know the truth. I also want to know how to get in the youth tournaments like the ones on the bass website because I think that it would be of help to me if I was part of that. Oh, and one last thing. When you explain what I should do to get the pros, 
can you please tell me exactly what I have to do? Because I really want to make it to the pros. And that is exclamation times four. So, uh, Justin, that's a great question. Steve, you want to get us started? Well, that's from uh, Justin and BB Arkansas. And Justin sounds like he's got a pretty good chance at making it just on his desire. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, joining the Bass Club, that's part of that formula. But I just want to share this with Justin. About two years ago, I was interviewing Kevin Van Dam, and I asked him, I said, what advice do you have for young people who want to be the next Kevin Van Dam? And his answer was very, very short. Go to college and get a degree in marketing. And I just thought that was incredibly good advice from the guy who knows better than anybody. I think, first of all, you have to go into the career understanding what your job really is. You're a representative of sponsors and people that you're business partners with. So you have to be able to uh, be on television and talk and do those kinds of things. Kevin's advice was to take every chance you can to speak in public. You know, uh, I let Aaron talk about the fishing part of it, but I will say that the road to this or any career can be tough, and it needs a great deal of dedication, which means some sacrifice. So I think just being as tough-minded as possible, you may end up sleeping in your back of your pickup in the very early years of that, but just mental toughness, just stick with it, confidence, make sure it happens, uh, develop those kinds of attitudes, and understand that your main job really is to represent your sponsor. Well, I couldn't agree more. You know, there there's a lot to be said for being articulate, being able to represent in public um, the marketing, because obviously, you know, there has to be a trade-off. There has to be a return on investment, and, and you ultimately have to bring something to the bottom line of those organizations of which you represent. Now, you know, concerning the fishing, I'm going to break it up into two categories. One is going to be the fundamental side of it, you know, kind of like if you compare it to an, an athlete, another athlete, maybe in basketball or golf or anything else. You know, there's skills that you have to have. You know, you have to be able to cast and you have to be able to, to read the water and, and learn that. One of the things that helped really expedite my learning curve was that club situation, like Justin mentioned, you know, getting involved and developing, working with some mentors there. But also as a co-angler, you know, even if you only want to fish, and let's say, let's take the whole competitive situation out of it. Being a co-angler and, and getting on a body of water, if it's a multi-day event, chances are you're going to get on there with uh, a couple different anglers. You get to see how those anglers break down that water. You get to compare, mm -hmm. you know, the decisions that you made, why he was throwing those baits that he was throwing, why you made the moves that you did. So that's another way, you know, when I entered as a co-angler, I almost considered that as my college education on the fundamental side of learning how to fish. And it really didn't matter if I won or lost or anything else because I was there taking as many mental notes as what I could. And every night I would go back and record those in my journal. Now, the other aspect is what you brought up, Steve, is the psychology of the fishing. You know, you have to learn how to compete. Decision-making is absolutely paramount. And when you think about a pro angler, uh, not only are they making their living with their rod and reel, but they also have to be a logistician. They have to be able to schedule their travel plans and, and do management right. and time management and manage their practice time on the water and schedule uh, their scheduling and, and their funding and their keeping track of receipts, all these things that go into it. And that's when Jay McNamara, when he came out with his book, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing, I think that's a must-have for any angler because Fishing is just as much about mental as what it is about fundamental. So, uh, Justin, there you have it. There you are. And uh, hopefully that helps get you on your way. But I agree with Steve. I think you're most definitely on your way just given uh, your desire 
uh, what you indicated to us and to make this happen. Well, and I'll just share with Justin that uh, how I feel about things, but uh, Justin, you will be a pro if you dedicate yourself to it, work hard at it, and if you're willing to do everything that it takes, I would think that you will absolutely be a pro, and maybe you and Kevin Van Dam can have a conversation up on the stage one day. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, set your sights, pursue your passion, follow your dreams, because there is no one else that can tell you uh, any more than yourself of what you can and cannot do. So stick with it, Justin. Best of luck, and uh, hope to see you out on the water, buddy. We'll look for Justin down the road, and we need to slip away again and come back to our good buddy, Dr. J himself, Dr. J McNamara. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Hi, I'm Pam Martin-Wells, and you're on The Edge. Hello, and welcome back to The Edge. And joining us for this week's Inside Edge is Dr. Fish himself, and that is Jay McNamara. Jay, once again, thanks so much for being part of The Edge. Hey, Aaron, good to be here. You know, I've been anticipating this topic because it's probably the number one question that I get asked uh, throughout my travels and via emails and things like that. And that is on the topic of making good decisions. And, you know, there's really a lot to be said of, of how much that impacts your day on the water. Well, absolutely. You know, uh, it's one of the, my first lessons in tournament fishing, and it's one of the lessons that uh, I hear that the uh, pro anglers talk about all the time. You know, most people are pretty good at catching the fish when they're on them. Uh, the guys that are really good, the anglers that are really talented, are the ones that can make good decisions that get them in the right place with the right bait at the right time. You know, and, and, and taking that even a step further is the fact of, let's say, things maybe have tapered off or maybe the, the spot or the location or the bait that you're using necessarily has not developed like you anticipated or like you experienced during practice. At what point, what gauges or litmus tests can you use to say, okay, I need to make a change, I need to move, I need to try something different? Give us some help there. Sure. Well, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that good decisions are based on good information. You know, it's pretty hard to make a really good decision if you've got lousy, inaccurate, or incomplete information. The ability to make good decisions on the water starts with your ability to have good data available before you get in the boat. And that includes getting a good lake map, getting a sense of where the fish are likely to be based on the season of the year, um, doing your map study, um, charting out some spots that you think are reasonable places, and then uh, um, using that information to get started. We think about uh, decision-making at that point becoming either internal or external, and one of the easiest things for most people to do is to just drop their rods strap them down, get behind the wheel, and roar off to another spot. It's, it's more difficult, I think, for anglers to, to uh, make decisions internally about the place that they're at currently and how a different casting angle, a different size bait, a different color bait, a different bait altogether um, run through the same water might make a big difference. Well, and I think, you know, going back to what you and I had, had talked about earlier this year, which was attitude and focus, you know, the, this whole psychology piece ties in together, hence that's the reason, the whole reason really why 
you came out with with the book. But you know, I was told that your thoughts throughout the day and and the the decision process, I guess, you know, the analogy was used that you know if you think of it, for instance, like a, a currency, that the past is basically a canceled check. You know, the future kind of represents a promissory note. And the present really is our only currency that we have to spend, so spend it wisely. And, you know, you bringing up thinking about what, uh, you know, you had to do yesterday versus what we have to do tomorrow, you really have to remove all of that from your thought process to even allow, you know, the opportunity for success to come in through your decision-making process. Well, you're right. You can't fish old memories, that's for sure. I mean, you hear that all the time among tournament anglers as well as recreational anglers, that they're, you're fishing uh, yesterday's fish. Um, if the fish have moved, if they've changed location, if they've changed their attitude, um, you have to be able to adapt to that. But so often the fish have changed their attitude more than they've changed their location. And there are zillions of stories about people um, making a slight modification in either their presentation, their casting angle, or their lure uh, to make that happen. So what advice could you give us for actually improving our decision-making skills? I know you've outlined several things there in the book. You know, are there any tips that you could pass on to us, you know, that we could help well, us think, instantly? Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the most important things is uh, having a set of options available when you run into difficulties. So it's like having a plan, a backup plan, and then a backup plan for your backup plan. Um, if you've got an area of the lake that you're going to go to and you think that it's a good spinnerbait bite, for example, uh, you go there and the spinnerbait bite doesn't materialize the way you think. Before you take off for another area, um, what's your backup plan? Is your backup plan to try a, a smaller spinnerbait or a larger spinnerbait, uh, change blades, change skirt color, change your retrieve speed, change your retrieve type from maybe you were slow rolling it and maybe you should be burning it? And then what are some other lures that might work in this particular situation? Um, I fished a tournament last fall with a guy who uh, fished a spot, and the area that we caught the fish in was pretty small. He caught uh, six fish on six different lures in this one particular area, and we never wound up changing spots very much, but we just saturated this uh, one spot over and over and over again with uh, different lures, and he caught enough fish to win the tournament. Well, and, and you know, to tag on to that, I can remember one of the Ask the Pros questions that came in that Scott Suggs had actually answered, and, and the question was pertaining to, you know, if, if you've got nine rods laying on the deck, you've tried everything, you really felt like that, you know, the fish were going to be there, were going to be responding, then what? And I thought Scott gave a very good reply when he commented on the fact that, you know, typically he will break it down into, you know, pattern. If he was on, say, a, a shallow bite that essentially they have just completely, you know, shut off, then what he will do is maybe move out a little bit deeper and target, you know, a different area of the water column, but not give up or not leave uh, that particular area altogether. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. Well, it is. And that, again, has to do with, you know, how much information do you have to start with? Are you uh, pretty sure that there are fish in this area? You've contacted fish in this area before. There's no reason to think that they're not still in that general area. Then make small changes, make minor modifications like Scott is suggesting, rather than run to an entirely different area of the lake. Well, all good stuff, Jay. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but uh, the good news is you can certainly get more information from you in multiple ways. Uh, would you care to share that before we get out of here? Sure. Uh, the uh, book, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing, is available at uh, BassEdge.com. Click on Shop Bass Edge, and there you'll find it. And you can also send us your questions on the uh, Ask the Pro section of the BassEdge.com website. Well, very good, Jay. Uh, wish you the best of luck and look forward to talking with you again very soon. 
Okay, you're in. Take care. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. That was great. It's always great to hear from Dr. J, and we look forward to him visiting us again. But Aaron, I tell you what, I think we sort of need a drum roll Well, here. that's what I was just about ready to say, Steve. <laughs> you know, you must not have received your uh, sound effects kit yet in the mail, so uh, I was hoping you was going to be able to reach over and hit the button, because this is big time. We had to allow just an extra four minutes to read all this stuff off that we're going to be giving away. Well, this is our 100th podcast drawing that we announced the last two weeks, and we have a winner, and Aaron, would you please do the honor. I will most definitely. Congratulation goes out to Gary in Dubuque, Iowa. So, Gary, we will be getting you one of the following items. You will receive a copy of Dr. J. McNamara's Psychology of Exceptional Fishing book, Steve Brigman's very own right here, Somebody's Gotta Do It book, the Electronics 101 DVD, the Bass Edge Season 1 DVD set, the Bass Edge Season 2 DVD set, the Go-To Tackle Storage System, the Bass Edge Decal, an Ardent Real Cleaning Kit, a sampling of mothers, waxes, polishes, and cleaners, a Bass Edge hat, and a Bass Edge Tour shirt. I'm out of breath. Wow, I tell you what, we added a few things. That's yeah. great. Well, congratulations, Gary, and thanks to everybody who entered, and y'all be sure and look for more giveaways on The Edge and on the website. Well, absolutely, and uh, Steve, we're going to have to figure out how to get our names in that drawing. I know it. Well, I'm just going to figure out how to get in the back room <laughs> over the office. <laughs> snag, me. I had to snag me another Electronics 101 yeah. DVD. Of course, I, somebody came over and I let mine out. Yeah, of course. Well, unfortunately, Steve, that will about do it for this show. Hard to believe, but we'll be back again next week, and... Uh, uh, why don't you share with us who we have up? Oh, we got our old friend Kurt Dove. Uh, always good to visit with Kurt. And then Mark Tucker will be back with some great tips. Oh, look forward to that. We'll be up on uh, the North Country sharing that with both Kurt and Mark. Uh, be sure to join us for this show on the Outdoor Channel, where Bass Edge is seen three times weekly at 8 a.m. Thursdays, 9 a.m. Fridays, and Saturday afternoon at 2.30 all Eastern time. For the latest Bass Edge information, merchandise, and for an opportunity to win prizes and ask the pro questions, be sure and log on to BassEdge.com. For Steve Brigman, I am Aaron Martin, and we look forward to seeing you again next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edge's The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Mega Wear Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.